I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Wife of Bath is a gift. She was one of the reasons I think I became a writer, actually, reading a character that just stepped off the page so fully formed. Oh, wow, the landscape's suddenly opening up. We're crossing the River Medway now. We can see the docks and the ports on either side. This moment that we're living through, when the language is all of hostility, there have been other languages available to us. And if you trace that back, then you get to Chaucer. One that April with his surest suitor the draught of March hath pierced to the rooter, and bathed every vein in such liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the fleur, when Zephyrus eke with his sweeter breath, in spirit hath in every halt and heath the tender croppers, and the younger son hath in the ram his half a corset run, and smaller fowlers make a melody that sleepen all the nacht with open e, so pricketh him nature in her courages. Then longen folk to goon on pilgrimages. That's my version of the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, his enormous, unfinished, fragmentary masterpiece from the 14th century, which for many stands as the first great landmark of literature in the English language. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode we're going to follow in the footsteps of Chaucer's pilgrims, travelling from Southwark to Canterbury and stopping off along the way to hear the tales they tell each other. We're just off Borough High Street in Southwark, Uh, just south of the Thames in London. And we're standing in the yard of a stunning, galleried coaching inn on Borough High Street. It's called the George Inn. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by the poet and children's author, Patience Agbabi. Welcome, Patience. Hello, Henry. It's so great that you could join us here today. Patience uh, performs her poetry live around the world, on TV and radio as well. Uh, She lectures at universities around the UK. She's a fellow in creative writing at Oxford Brookes University. She's published four collections of poetry, including the brilliant Telling Tales, of which more later. And that book uh, grew out of a year spent as Canterbury Laureate from 2009 to 2010. 
She's been shortlisted for the Ted Hughes Award and Wales Book of the Year, and she's been a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature since 2017. Patience, I was going to ask you, when did you first come across Geoffrey Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales? Was it something you knew before your laureate year? Oh yes, a long, a long time before. I'd um, obviously heard of Chaucer and um, then decided to do A-level English and um, had no idea I'd be doing Chaucer. And then our, our English teacher came to the room and basically read us the opening of the Canterbury Tales, right. which you'd just done. And, and it was the hairs on the back of the neck moment, really. I just loved the language instantly. Didn't really know what was going on, but, but <laughs> loved the sounds of it. And then, of course, he passed the books around and we actually saw it on the page. So I got that dual kind of experience of both the listening and the, and the reading on the page. And, and suddenly some of it started to make sense. And I had a, quite a deep connection with it from the very beginning. That's fantastic to hear because I feel like some people who meet Chaucer at school are <laughs> quite sometimes put off by him because he can be difficult but I think that's so interesting that you first heard him read out because for me there's each time I come back to Chaucer I find the language difficult and then there's a moment where you kind of click into the mode of reading Chaucer and then it flows much more easily and I reckon that's to do with hearing it and knowing what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's really important. And um, I'd just done French and German O level as well, so mm. I kind of had that Germanic mm. and uh, Romantic languages coming together thing anyway. On top of which, I was living in North Wales, where of course I was hearing Welsh, which of course is in- even much more difficult than Middle English. <laughs> so I think that <laughs> so kind of easy. put things in perspective. <laughs> and because um, I love I love the sound of languages anyway. You know, yes. I, I like Shakespeare and Russian, for example. Oh, right. So even though I can't speak a word of Russian, so. For me, the sound was the primary thing. And then, right. yes, secondarily, the seeing it on the page and then suddenly recognising words and, the, you know, the derivations of words and all that stuff. Fantastic. Well, let's describe where we're standing at the moment. So this is the last pub that looks like this in London, but there used to be lots of these pubs along this road. This was the kind of uh, setting off point for people leaving London on the way to Canterbury and Dover and Europe. So let's talk about the the kind of setup of the Canterbury Tales. The narrator of this poem is similar to, but not quite the same as Geoffrey Chaucer, the poet. And the narrator describes being uh, in a pub just like this one called the Tabard, which was a real pub in the 14th century and, and was right next door to where we're standing now. And he describes being in the pub on his way to Canterbury to, to go on pilgrimage and 29 other pilgrims gather in the pub that night and they're all kind of travelling to travel separately. And it's the pub landlord, uh, Harry Bailey, who kind of steps in and has this bright idea for how they could become of one another's fellowship and travel as one group. I thought I'd just read this little section that sets it up. He says, Befell that in that season, on a day, in Southwark, at the tabard as I lay, ready to wenden on my pilgrimage to Canterbury, with full devout courage, at night was come into that hostelry well nine and twenty in a company of sundry folk by adventure ifal in fellowship, and pilgrims were they all. Patience, can you describe what's the kind of game that he proposes? Well, basically he says that each pilgrim should tell two tales on the way to Canterbury and two tales on the way back, and the winner will will get supper back at the Tabard Inn as a kind of reward. I mean, <laughs> it's, it seems of quite a small reward for yes, quite a big right. task. But of course, as we know, it became an unfinished text, so Chaucer yes. even managed to write each of the pilgrims' tales, even on the way yes. there, not even one each. Yes, exactly. So if you'd managed to do two there and two back, there are 30 pilgrims... 
I mean, it would have been 120 stories. It would have been absolutely enormous. I think there are 24 tales on the water. Yes, yeah, that's around. right. And yes, yeah, that's right. Harry Bailey's quite a clever guy, isn't he? Because what he says is, well, whoever does it best will come back, will sit by this post, and everyone will club together and buy the meal for that winner. But of course, that also means they'll all be back in his pub buying a meal themselves. So he's, he knows what he's doing. Good he's, bis- a good yeah. businessman, Harry Bailey. <laughs> absolutely. It's also worth saying that Harry Bailey explains the criteria for what's going to be the best story that they hear. He says the winner will be the tale of best sentence and most solace. And I think what he means by that is the tale that has the best sentence, so the best kind of moral to it, but also the most solace, the most entertaining. And hats off to Chaucer, most of the stories do tick both those boxes, right? Yeah, well, there are a few that only tick one particular box. Yes. But, um, but I, I think, yes, I mean, there's such breadth and depth in Chaucer. And that's something we come back to again and again. And I certainly, from it trying to re-inhabit the tales, I was very, very struck by the enormous range. That's his forte. Well, let's set out, like the pilgrims, and go round the corner to the spot of the actual Tabard Inn where they meet and uh, set off. Great. We've just come round the corner into Talbot Yard, which is a, a kind of, it's a sort of forgotten-looking street off Borough High Street. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the most kind of pretty street in London. It's kind of the backs of buildings with pipes and drains and metal hoarding up. But this street we're standing in is the site of the Tabard Inn, which was standing there in the 1380s when Chaucer was writing The Canterbury Tales. And in fact, look, there's a blue plaque here Um, sort of very hidden from sight, really. You'd have to know it was here to find it, which is a plaque to Geoffrey Chaucer, who lived from 1342 to 1400, England's greatest medieval poet and the author of the Canterbury Tales. And then it says, uh, the Tabard Inn, this was the site from which Chaucer's pilgrims set off in April 1386. So we're right here on the spot. Now, the Canterbury Tales opens with this sort of bravura section, which has come to be called the general prologue, where Chaucer goes through each of the pilgrims and tells us about them in detail. Sometimes tells us their names, tells us exactly what they were wearing, what kind of horse they were riding, and also kind of gives us glimpses into their character. He's, I think that's one of the most clever things he does, right, is he kind of, he's a slightly sort of naive narrator, so we sometimes understand more than the narrator's telling us. It's a brilliant section, isn't it, that general prologue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, well, that was my first um, you know, encounter with Chaucer, was the general prologue, and you sort of get the, the setting up of Pranatapril and all that, and then suddenly you, you get these character descriptions, and they just walk off the page, yes. don't they? He just brings them to life. And yes, I love the, the Chaucerian irony, where he'll sort of claim that he's you know, praising the, the cook, yes. <laughs> or praising his boil, yes. the hideousness of his boils, or whatever. <laughs> yes, I mean, they right. just... <laughs> You know, just the humour, the humour was one of the things that really struck me very early on. I mean, especially doing A-level English where, you know, there are quite a lot of serious literature with a capital L. And um, and Chaucer is serious literature with a capital L. But but the playfulness that's there as well as the gravitas was was what really hooked me in. Definitely. It's really funny. And and uses of language as well. Like, he uses the word worthy a lot, doesn't he? He does. And there's more upper-class, salubrious characters. He'll describe the knight as worthy, and then he'll describe the monk as a worthy man. 
but gradually he keeps using this word worthy and, and by the end he's describing these real kind of villains as worthy and you're like well okay so that, that kind of changes how you see the, the yeah. first characters he was describing yeah, yeah. I love that slippage yeah. that goes through doesn't it you're not quite sure you never can never quite pin down you know is he is he is he truly praising when you go back to yeah. the night is he truly yeah. praising the night patience let's talk about your book telling tales which came out in 2014 I just love this book. It's your kind of modern reinvention of the Canterbury Tales, set on a Routemaster bus to Canterbury. It's had such praise from the current Poet Laureate, Simon Armitage, calls it the liveliest versions of Chaucer you're likely to read. The former Poet Laureate, Andrew Motion, calls it a wonderful achievement. How did that project come together? How, did, how were you inspired to write this book? Well, I'd, I'd written a version of The Wife of Bath, just the prologue, not the tale, in, in a previous book that came out in 2000. So I'd always kind of, over the years, kept revisiting Chaucer after university. And then, completely out of the blue, in, in 2009, I received uh, uh, an email from um, Canterbury City Council, and they were asking me to be Canterbury Laureate. And the reason they asked me was that they, they knew I'd previously worked in the area and um, was a poet, you know, kind of... They wanted me to um, engage with the public, and part of the remit was to engage in, in some way with Canterbury. And of course, it, the first thing I thought was the Canterbury Tales. But by even more spooky coincidence, about a week before, my husband and I had been discussing what my next project would be, and he said, "Well, you know, you've, you know, w- w- might you go back to, you know, maybe revisit some of these Chaucer poems? You know, you've talked about it a lot. You've, you've done the Wife of Bath, but might you take on a bigger challenge?" And so I saw it as a sign. I absolutely saw it as a sign. It's like, right, I, I really do need to do You've this. Been given this time. Absolutely. That's so exciting. We're going to be talking a lot about telling tales today, and I'm really looking forward to it. One of, just while we're here talking about the general prologue and introducing the characters at the start of the day, I think you, you've done such a clever thing, which is um, instead of putting up front, like Chaucer does, a description of each character, as in a modern poetry anthology you've included at the back of telling tales a section of author biographies with fictional biographies for each of the characters telling these tales and I just think they're so good it'd be so I think it'd be easy to read the book and sort of skip them like you might skip a index or something but it's absolutely worth reading every detail because they're so good Thank you. Yeah, it was a gift, actually, to um, try to reinvent and have the general prologue at the back of the book. Um, each of them are 50 words, which is another a kind of nerdy thing uh-huh. that you might not have picked up on. I hadn't picked up on but, that. But it, it was the voicing of each of these um, these biographies. Um, you know, some of them are very first person, very chatty. Yes. Some of them are incredibly formal. Yes. You know? Some of them um, like a sort of Twitter um, description. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and I think it, it, again, it, it's feeding back to that idea of telling tales, telling stories, telling re- real whoppers actually with some of them. But also trying to bounce off the original pilgrims. So some of them are quite close to the original. I try to keep right. quite close, and some of them I kind of go off at some weird tangent. <laughs> it's, like, it's excellent. So before we set off, I feel like what we should hear is your version of Harry Bailey's invocation to the pilgrims to start this day. So this is the prologue by Harry Bells Bailey. Patience, over to you. So this is, yes, prologue, grime mix. When my April showers me with kisses, I could make her my missus or my mistress, but I'm happily hit. Sorry, home girls, said my vows to the sound of the bow bells, yet her breath is as fresh as the west wind. When I breathe her, I know we're predestined to make music my muse, she inspires me. Then my mind's overtaxed, April fires me. 
How she pierces my heart to the fond root, till I bleed sweet cherry blossom on root to our bliss trip. This day she goes off me. April loves me, nor April loves me. With a passion, dear doctor, I'm word sick, and I got the itch like I'm allergic. But it could be my shirt's on the cheap side. Serenade overnight with my peeps wide. Nothing like a liqueur, an elixir. Overproof that she serves as my sick cure. She's as strong as a ram, she is Aries. See my jaw dropping jeans, she could wear these. See my jaw dropping the Anglo Saxon. I got ink in my veins more than Caxton. And it flows hand to mouth, here's a mouth feast. Verbal feats from the streets to the southeast. But my April, she blooms every shire's end. Fit or vint, ritual skint, she inspires them. From the grime to the clean cut iambic. Remorial, rantle rap, get your slam kick. On this route, must a bus get cerebral. Tabard into Canterbury Cathedral. Poet pilgrims competing for free picks. Chaucer Tales track by track, here's the remix. From below the belt, bass to the top notch. I won't stop all the clocks with a stopwatch. If the rhymes overrun, run offensive. Or unclean out of steam, they're authentic. Because we're keeping it real, reminisce this. Chaucer Tales were an unfinished business. May the best poet lose, as the saying goes. May the best poet muse be mainstaying those. On the stage, on the page, on the subject. Me and April, we're the rhyming couplet. I'm the host for tonight, Harry Bailey. If I'm tongue-tied, April will bail me. I'm MC, but the M is for mistress. When my April shows me what a kiss is. Oh, fantastic. Gosh, and I should tell listeners that Patience did that entirely from memory. There was no script there at all. Patience, thank you. What a brilliant way to start the day. No, thank you. you. (laughs) Well, let's set off. We're we're not, unfortunately, travelling by horseback over three or four days to Canterbury. We're taking the train... (laughs) <laughs> from London Bridge Station. So let's head that way now and catch the train. Yeah, let's put on our masks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut straight through here. So we set off on the train from London Bridge. We're recording this in October 2020, so COVID restrictions are in place. We're wearing our masks, which is why it sounds a little bit muffled. But we can imagine the Chaucer's pilgrims riding along essentially the same route that we're travelling today by rail. And uh, they set off out of the Tabard Inn, down what's now the Old Kent Road, towards Canterbury. And the first place they stop is a little stream which Chaucer calls the watering of St. Thomas. And this is an actual stream that's now pretty much underground. Um, it, it's now basically under the car park of the big Tesco on the Old Kent Road. Um, but of course, the watering of St. Thomas, that's a reference to St. Thomas a Becket. And it was the shrine of Thomas a Becket at Canterbury Cathedral that the pilgrims are walking towards. So it's quite an appropriate place for their first stop. And in fact, weird coincidence but just opposite that Tesco there is an old pub uh, I mean not as old as the George or the Tabard but a a kind of Victorian pub called the Thomas a Beckett so who knows someone must have had a Chaucerian reference going on there but the pilgrims draw straws for who's going to go first and it's the knight and that feels appropriate because he's the most aristocratic of the pilgrims and so you know he takes precedence And, and Patience what what kind of a tale does he tell? It's very long. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's quite a painful tale, actually, because it's about two men in love with the same woman. Yes. And um, there doesn't seem to be that much difference between the men, although there yeah. is. Although one sees her first. I think it was actually written quite a long time before he chose to take on the Canterbury Tales project. 
and then I think he shoehorned it in. Oh, is that I think, right? I think okay. I'm right in saying that. I mean, one of the clever things that Chaucer does is he puts a- appropriate tales into the mouths of the pilgrims, right? So this is the kind of tale that a knight might tell. It's a tale of chivalry, of, of kind of romance. And I say also it's sort of, I suppose, in heavily inverted commas, high art to right. sort of begin, begin at a very high standard in yes. terms of maybe audience expectations, etc. Right. So then, but then, again, this is where Chaucer's so good because he started with the knight and then when the knight finishes... The host says, OK, well, who's next? And turns to the monk, who's perhaps the next sort of, in terms of social status, the next pilgrim who might want to speak. But at that point, the drunken miller kind of bursts onto the scene and says, no, you know, I've got a story I'm going to tell you. I absolutely and, love that, that sort of that interruption. Yes. You know, because you, you get that very strong sense of, of that there's drama within the stories, but there's also sort of drama within the actual pilgrims who are telling the stories. Yes. And that's very entertaining, very skillfully done. And so tell us about... This drunken miller, tell us about him. What's, what's he like as a, as a character? As a character, well, he's, he's big and broad and, and quite, quite kind of scary. I mean, there's, there's the implication, of course, that he's a very dodgy geezer who kind of fills his flower up with, with all sorts of other stuff right. to make a profit. So, um, which, you know, was, I think, quite common in those days. Um, Try to remember, yeah, he, he wrestles, he's a wrestler. Yeah, but something says some... There was no door that he nulled a heave off hard. There was no door that he couldn't heave off its hinges and, and or break it at a running with his head. Like, Absolutely. weird. <laughs> this huge guy, like, running at doors with his head. Yeah, but I like that because it's, it's such a strong image and so yeah. unexpected. Yes, totally. <laughs> and he's drunk, right? He's, he's, he kind of admits he's drunk. And he's, he's, you know, they've only just set out early in the morning. There's a description of the general prologue, but as they set out from London... He's playing the bagpipes to accompany their riding. And that's a great, you know, introducing that music to it as well. It's a kind of loud, brash. It's the perfect instrument for him to be playing. Yes, very much so. And I can, I can see why, you know, it, as a writer, you, you would probably want the miller to come in quite early and tell the tale. Really liven things up. Absolutely. So his tale, tell us, tell us a little bit about the miller's tale. OK, well, the, the miller's tale is about... Uh, well, I say it's a menace à trois, but it's kind of a menace à quatre. In that, right, yes. <laughs> in that... You have you know, the old miller, his young, very attractive wife, and then you have her lover, but then you also have a rival lover. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's kind of unexpected. Yes. And quite yes. clever, and the way yes. the way that that sets things up, sort of interesting plot shenanigans. And of course, the, the miller's tale is is the one of the most famous. I'd say whenever you say Chaucer, people say, "Oh, the miller's tale, yes. farting." Yes. They do. That's what they say. So it's, very, it's quite interesting, though, that, that that's the yes. one that seems to capture the public imagination. That is interesting. And, and as you say, interesting that he puts it right up at the top, that it's, you know, kind of putting that juxtaposition of this very kind of formal, chivalrous knight's tale next to this bawdy tale of farting and adultery next to it. it he kind of, it's almost like he's, like, pegging out his stool at the start. It's like, we're going to have best sentence and then we're going to have more salas all the way through this. Yeah, trip. yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it is interesting in a way because he was writing for a courtly audience and yet you almost wonder whether, in a sense, Shakespeare kind of playing to the groundlings, you know, early on thinking, actually, I want to include ordinary people. We'll, yes. we'll relate to this because the reality is the people who tend to like the Miller's Tale and know, only know about the Miller's Tale tend to be ordinary people who don't know much about Chaucer, right, who aren't right. like to read Chaucer, but know about the Miller's Tale. Famous because Mick Jagger 
cyclist from Dartford. Was he? I yeah, he went to Dartford. That. He went to Dartford Grammar. Mick and, um, wow. Yeah, so the boys' grammar has got a sort of very good music department. I didn't know that. So we're just coming into Dartford now. We've crossed a footbridge from the station. And Dartford, of course, is the place where you would have forded the River Dart. It, must, it was probably one of the locations where, the, where pilgrims from London would have broken their journey. They'd have stayed the night here, perhaps, travelled on horseback for one day and got to Dartford. We're just approaching Holy Trinity Church, Dartford, at the end of the high street here, with the bells chiming at 11 o'clock. And here you really get a sense of, of, you know, what Chaucer and what his fictional pilgrims would have experienced because this, this flint and stone church was built in the 11th century and it really has a kind of this dominant position at the end of the high street. You can see it all the way up the high street and it would have been the kind of beacon for pilgrims walking into the town. They knew they could rest here. They could finally have a, a, a night's sleep after their day's journey. It's a beautiful building, isn't it? It's huge, actually. Yeah. I think it's worth remembering that Chaucer himself was a very well-travelled man, wasn't he? He was, he had, he was a very senior uh, diplomat and civil servant in the 14th century. Yes, I think he could speak several languages. He yeah. travelled Europe, you know, compared to the average person in those days. Yes. He was at the top of society, really. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, he'd, he'd visited Italy and he'd fought as a soldier in France. And, and so this route... We don't know if he came on pilgrimage to Canterbury himself, but we know he travelled this road to get to Dover and across to Europe. So he would have seen this church for sure. Patience, in the acknowledgements section of Telling Tales, you finish the acknowledgements by saying, you thank Geoffrey Chaucer for creating a literary work that defies time and space. That's a great line. What, what do you mean by it? Well, I, th- I think that the, the timelessness of the characters is, is something that's always struck me. I mean, it, whenever I've um, performed the Canterbury Tales, and I've performed all over the world, different places, you always have, find someone, someone will come up to me and say, oh, yes, yes, we have a Miller, oh, we have a wife of Bath. <laughs> yes, I know, I know that yes. person. Um, so I, th- I think that's, that's the issue of the timelessness. And as, as for space, I mean, you mentioned earlier Chaucer doesn't really mention places en route very much he, mm. mean, he name drops a few places mm. so it, it is important that it's London to Canterbury and the Canterbury Tales but in some ways that's immaterial because he's I think he's more interested in the characters the stories that they tell and maybe the individual either sort of bawdy or spiritual journeys you go on within yes. each tale and I, it's kind of something that can translate to almost any time or space it can be sort of remapped onto any other landscape so I think that's that's the important thing and I think he almost knew that as he was writing it yes I love that. Yes, I'm, I'm sure he did. We, um, William Blake, the early 19th century poet and painter, has that great line where he says, the characters of Chaucer's pilgrims are the characters which compose all ages and nations. Names or titles are altered by time, but the characters themselves forever remain unaltered. I, th- I think that the, de- the detail makes them seem real. That was what made them step off the page for me initially. And then the reality then makes you compare fictional characters to real characters yeah. and, and blur those boundaries. Uh-huh. Such a talent. Now, one of the best known and, and most brilliant characters in the Canterbury Tales is the wife of Bath. It seems like Chaucer particularly enjoyed writing about the wife of Bath because she gets a 
big chunk of a general prologue. And then when she comes to tell her tale, the kind of introductory prologue is the longest of all the characters. And uh, his description of her is great in the general prologue. He says, Bold was her face and fair and red of hue. She was a worthy woman all her life. There's worthy again. And thrice had she been at Jerusalem. She had a passed many a strange stream. She could much of wandering by the way. Gapped tooths she was, soothly for to say. So she's the most experienced pilgrim of all of them. She's been to Jerusalem. We, we hear she's also been to Santiago de Compostela. She's been to Rome. And that typical Chaucer, she knew much of wandering by the way. Well, that could mean all sorts of things, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> you can interpret that on many levels. As soon as I met the, the wife of Bath, and this was, this was as, a, as a student, um, in fact, as a school kid, because, of course, I met her in the general prologue then, uh-huh. and my English teacher said, oh, you should read her tale, which I then did, you know, even as a 17-year-old. I just couldn't wait to hear what, she, you know, what more she had to say. Um, she reminded me of Nigerian women I've met, one in particular, actually. <laughs> so um, so my, my version is a kind of mixture of a sort of made-up, but, you know, Chaucer's wife of Bath, and, and yet this, the, the woman I know. And it works so well because Chaucer's wife of Bath is quite a wealthy um, woman. She's made her money through cloth making in Bath. And of course, that means you can bring in Dutch wax print cloth making through your wife of Bath. And- yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it was just the wife of Bath is a gift. You know, that's why that, that was the first sort of tale that I wanted to take on board, you know, well before I did telling tales. She... She was one of, the, one of the reasons I think I became a writer, actually, meeting a character that just stepped off the page so fully formed. And so, um, in a way, it didn't feel like I had to make many changes to, to create the character, because she was sort of already there. It was more like a translation in terms of language, so to make her speak in Nigerian English. That, that was, I think, the sort of newness that I brought to the table in creating The Wife of Buffa. Fabulous. Well, Patience, if you were happy to, we'd love to hear a section from your version of The Wife of Buffa. Yes, of course. Mrs. Alice Ebi Buffer. What do women like best? My name is Mrs. Alice Ebi Buffer. I come from Nigeria. I'm very fine, isn't it? My next birthday are B29. I'm businesswoman. Would you like to buy some cloth? Of all the latest styles from Lagos, Italian shoe and handbag to match, lace linen and dash wax. I only buy the best and I travel first class. Some say I have blood on my hands because I like to paint my nails red, but others call me femme fatale. My father had four wives, so I've had five husbands. I cast a spell with my gap to smile and my bottom power. Three were good and two were bad. The first two were old and rich, and I was young and fit. They died of exhaustion. The first from Ghana, second Sierra Leone, the third was white English man. Short or tall, black or white, I had race relations with them. They were quiet, simple men, so I told lie to pepper the marriage. Why drink Guinness in my neighbour's household? Is she so fine in her Jimmy shoe? You go vexed if I meet Justice Buffer in Lagos Bar and off my phone. Ah, ah, am I delighted to cut off your head? I accuse them of fornication when they can barely stand on their two legs. To enter my good book, they go beg. Brilliant. And then, of course, she, the wife of Bath goes on to tell her tale, and it, the tale itself is a almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? Of, um, a kind of Arthurian story of, uh, of a man trying to work out what women want best. And, you know, listeners should go and read your version of the poem. It's, it's fantastic. 
Okay, so uh, we've, we can imagine that we've, we've kind of stabled our horses for the night. We've spent a night here in Dartford, um, and now it's the next morning, and we need to kind of get back on the train and head to our next stop, which will be Rochester. So we're back on the train now, uh, heading between Dartford and Rochester. And I thought this would be a good um, moment to talk about another of the great characters from the Canterbury Tales, and that's the Pardoner, a really kind of sinister, strange character that Chaucer puts into this poem. He, he describes him like this. He says, This Pardoner had hair as yellow as wax, but smooth it hung as doth a strike of flex, by ounces hung his lockers that he had, and therewith he his shoulders overspread, but thin it lay by culpens oon and oon. You can almost feel this greasy, thin hair draped over the pardoner's shoulders. Um, and Patience, how, how would you describe this character? What, what's he like as a person? Well, <laughs> incredibly slimy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the last pilgrim described in the general mm. prologue. The knight, of course, is, is, is seen as the most sort of morally upstanding character, you know, at the, at the beginning of the general prologue, and then at the very, very end you get the pardoner. So the fact he, the pardoner's come at the end suggests that he's the exact opposite of the right. knight. And there's a really interesting bit where Torsa describes him as mm. the way that he wears his hair that you mentioned as being Arla the newer jet, this idea that he, he thinks he's in fashion right. wearing his hair like that, whereas actually it, it, it's not really working. He's not, he's not cutting it at all. And I, I, I love that. I love, I love the way... And I also love the way that the pardoner, he's the most morally despicable character, and yet he, he tells one of the most moral tales. Right, yes. It's worth saying you know, what a pardoner is. So, so the pardoner basically is carrying this kind of bag of holy relics you know, he um, he says he's got my crystal stones crammed full of clots and bones. Relics been they as when and they each on. So what what he does is goes round the country, and if if there's anyone in the crowd that he speaks to who's too ashamed of some sin they've committed to to go to confession to tell a priest about it, then he'll allow them to pay him to kiss these fake relics of his. And so he's he's absolutely kind of using the church and religion to make money and, and kind of this racket he's performing. Absolutely, and, and that fits in with Chaucer's larger, broader critique of the church. Yes. That's a lot, a lot of the, the most the dodgier characters. Yes. Quite a few of them are actually members of the, 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 the clerical Absolutely, class. yes. The monk spends all his time hunting and, and, and the friar seems to spend his whole time sleeping around his various parishioners. And I, I find what, what's really interesting about him, he... He actually describes to the pilgrims how he tells his tales, how he manages to manipulate his audiences yes. by using Latin. I think he uses the term to saffron, my word, you know, mm. to actually spice up right. the language. Yes. And I love that. In a way, you could, yeah. you could see Chaucer chuckling in the background behind his character, yeah. almost like giving away how you write, how you manipulate language in order yes. to sort of convert your listener as well. Right, right. And it almost reminds me of like a stage hypnotist or something, like a Darren Brown show or something, where he's kind of telling you how he's doing it even as he's persuading you hip putting you under a yeah it's, spell. It's, very, it's very clever isn't it the la mm. the layering that's going on with mm. within the text and then of course his story feels rather appropriate you know sitting here in the middle of a global pandemic with you know with covid masks over our mouths because his story is set 
during a time of plague. Well, it's set in Flanders during the Black Death. And of course, this was a massive part of life in 14th century England, that um, this terrifying and really deadly disease had spread through the world in the 1340s and then didn't go away. It kept recurring and um, there'd just been a resurgence of the plague just a few years before Chaucer was writing the Canterbury Tales. Um, so, you know, plague was very much part of the experience of Chaucer and his contemporaries. The, the tale is incredibly dark. Yes. I mean, it, it's, I, I love it, actually. Yes. That, that's the one I did for A-Level. Right. That, that's the tale I, I studied and that idea of the, the, the men kind of seeking death almost yes. you know, being, and wanting to kill death, that death yes, thou shalt yes. die. And I think what you do so brilliantly in your version of the Parna's Tale is you set that story in the context of gang violence. And uh, it makes it extra scary, I think, thinking. I think, there's, I think there's a point where they swear brotherhood or something mm. within Tulsa's text. And I think right. I like that idea and that idea of, you know, took that into the, the realm of, yes. of gangs and how they would swear you know, with, with each other. And so I decided, and swear in other ways as well. Uh-huh. There's a lot of, lot of blasphemy goes on. It is one of my favourites, I think, that tale. It's quite interesting because we were fairly shortly becoming into Rochester mm. where um, the BBC actually set their partner's tale. They filmed right. it in Rochester. Because yes. the, the they did some modern kind they, of TV adaptations, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And, and again, that their, their one, it was very sinister, very atmospheric. just been through Strood and oh wow the landscape suddenly opening up we're crossing the river Medway now and you can see the docks and the ports on either side and on the other side of the river we're just now able to see the Rochester castle the 12th century castle and as the trains curving round I can also see the spire of Rochester Cathedral as well this was the big central stop on the route from London to Canterbury. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So we're standing in central Rochester now, between Rochester Cathedral and Rochester Castle. You know, the castle, which is now a bit of a ruin, was built in the 12th century, so it was already 200 years old when pilgrims would have passed through here. And then on the other side of the road is Rochester Cathedral. You can hear the, the bells chiming. And this is a much older site. I mean, it's a, it's a Saxon foundation, and uh, the bulk of what we see today was a medieval building. And in fact, the tower with that distinctive spire, that went up in 1343. So um, for pilgrims in 1380s, it would have been this kind of brand new, rather um, spectacular new tower in the centre of the cathedral. Patience, one of the things that Chaucer does in the Canterbury Tales, is one of the brilliant things, is he writes himself into it. He has himself as one of the pilgrims in this fellowship moving towards Canterbury. But he does it in such a self-deprecating way, it's wonderful. When it's his turn to tell a story, the host turns to him, Chaucer, the narrator, and says, What man art thou, quod he, thou lookest as thou wouldst find an hare, for ever upon the ground I see thee stare. And, and he goes on describing Chaucer. He seemeth elvish by his countenance, for unto no white doth he dalliance. So he's presenting himself as this kind of shy, uh, sort of sort of downward-looking little man. It's, it's quite unusual. It is. I mean, he, he presents himself as somebody who doesn't really know what he's doing. <laughs> right. He had a lot of a lot of fun with that. Yeah. And and he tell he ends up telling two tales. He it's, tells one. And it's so bad. It's so that, bad. That, that he's kind of interrupted, isn't he? And then, then he's forced to tell another one. That's right. He's the only pilgrim who does tell two tales, isn't he? And yeah, I, I, mean, I think the joke is, I mean, the, the Chaucer character within the poem is a very bad poet. Right. So therefore he's such a bad poet that he then has to tell a tale in prose. Right, But the right. tale in prose is not really a story. No. Really, it's more of a sort of... Um, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. Because it's not it's a sermon, a sort of, exactly. It's a, it's a kind of meditation on... Patience on sort of prudence. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. Yeah. The, to be fair, he has a, he does present a very wise woman. Yes, that, you know, true. That, uh, Malibu's wife is, is is the one who says, "Don't take revenge." And it's forbearance, isn't it? It's about holding but back. I think what you do with these two stories is so good, patience in in telling tales. I mean, first of all, you present Sir Topaz as a rap battle between Topaz and... Grime, a grime a battle. Grime even. battle. Yeah, even, yes. even more. It had to be grime because it had to be... Sort of had a little London reference going in there. Nice. Um, because, yes. because grime is from E3 in London. So, and from Bo. So, um, yes, yes, I had, I had a lot of fun with that. And I it's tried really to make fun. it as, as sort of spontaneous sounding as possible, even though, of course, I edited it to death. But actually, I, I tried to write the first draft very, very quickly as if I was actually in a grime battle myself. It's interesting that Chaucer includes himself as a fictional character. I mean, did you find yourself putting yourself into 
telling tales in any way. Oh, ab- absolutely, <laughs> all over the place. I mean, uh, one of the one of the clues is that most of the tales are um, using a formal poetry in some way, even even the made up ones. And and if, if you were genuinely to have a an anthology in the, in the twenty first century, it'd be mostly free verse. But mm. because I love form so much, <laughs> and I, and I wanted to pay homage to Chaucer's forms, sure. like the, you know, Rime Royale, yes, right. you know, the rhyming couplet. Um, and, and and also create new ones, you know, play off the, you know, rather than have the prose, you know, create create new forms, kind of prose poetry forms. Uh-huh. So so because I wanted to do that, that's very much me, very much me to have it multicultural, very much me to take on the sort of gender and sexuality, all that to make it very sort of 21st century and have a sort of, I say predominantly, but not exclusively an urban feel to it. But that also feels so um, Chaucerian to me because... I think it's easy to forget when, especially when you're studying Chaucer or when you're kind of looking at him in the context of all the literature that's come after him, it's easy to forget that at the time he was writing, he was he was pioneering this language. You know, he was making up vocabulary, he was inventing new rhymes, he was pulling together what he could grab from different languages, from Anglo-Norman, from Latin, from French, from, you know... He's such an inventive writer, and I feel like you've absolutely caught that spirit in telling tales of playing around and kind of playing games, putting tales in different voices, and using language in a very fluid, exciting way. Yeah, I think I mean it must it must have been a fantastic time to be around as a writer, you know the the, the sort of you know late late fourteenth century because the English language was just sort of formed at that stage. It was just sort of morphing from French to English, and I think Parliament was first held in English in something like thirteen sixty something, I right, believe. And right. So you know, very exciting, and I wanted to capture that energy for me very much sort of early twenty first century and and the different Englishes we have yes. to celebrate those. And I always love that line from every Shearer's End of Engelond to Canterbury they went mm. that that sense of really important for it not just to be southern and London centric yep. and so I wanted to have different northern dialects of this one set in Scotland which is supposed to be right. the voice of a Scottish person there's a you know an Irish person there's Yorkshire dialect you know one set in North Wales is really important to me yep. and I've been lucky enough of course to travel around all those places to live in some of those places so I felt quite confident to sort of take on quite a few different dialects and you change the gender of some of the pilgrims, don't you, in, in telling tales? Yeah, it was very important to do that because um, in Chaucer's general prologue, he mentions the prioress and the wife of Bath, but there aren't any other female <laughs> you know, pilgrims who actually have a character sketch at all out of 29. So it's it very, very important to, um, to address that balance. So in, in, in the telling of the tales, I had a 50-50 split. So, you know, 24 tales, Brilliant. 12 told through male voices, 12 through women's. And one of the things I, I found really exciting as a writer was actually sort of taking on a range of male voices. Mm. But also, also I really wanted to take on the issue of sexuality, which I think, to be fair, you know, Chaucer with, with the characters of the partner and the summoner, you know, there is a sort of hint yes. that there's a gay relationship yes, going yes, on there. Although, of course, hint, yeah. he, you know, he does, never says it overtly because Chaucer never says anything directly <laughs> anyway. But also, the, it's very interesting, the character of the partner, there's a line, a char, he were a gelding or a mare. So the implication is maybe he's intersex, mm. maybe he's both. And again, I found that quite a radical thing, you know, for, for a 14th century text. So, OK, whilst he is portrayed as 
I don't know, a problematic character morally, but in terms of his actual tale, it's very complex. And in terms of the language, I would argue The Pardoner's Tale is one of the best written yes, tales right, and the definitely. most sophisticated in terms yeah. of what you were talking about, the different layering that it's got the Latin, but also, of course, you've got the sense of the way he used his words of French origin. And then there are also the sense of the Anglo-Saxon coming in as well, the grittiness mm. of that. And towards the end, when he gets into a, a little bit of an mm. argument, I think mm. it's with the Miller, where the Miller kind of tries to challenge him. So there's all that stuff, I think. That's why I think there's so much richness around the pardoner. We're just now, having left Faversham, passing the village of Borton under Bleen. And this is where the last pilgrim joins the group on the way to Canterbury. And it's the kind of gang of pilgrims moving along bumps into this cannon and the cannon's yeoman. And uh, when the cannon's yeoman starts telling everybody about the way that the cannon makes money, which turns out to be a pretty shady business involving alchemy and, and sort of kind of fooling people into thinking he can turn base metal into gold, the cannon runs off and the cannon's yeoman stays with the group and, and joins them as they approach Canterbury. Yeah, I particularly like that tale, mm. the cannon's yeoman's tale, actually, because it's... Um, the language of it, it's very much a sort of underground language of alchemy. Yes. All sorts of really interesting words that you, you don't find anywhere else in the Canterbury Tales. And when I decided to take mine on, I kind of tried to recreate that underground, clandestine feel. I think that's brilliant. And, and it also shows that, you know, the different worlds that Chaucer was plugged into. I mean, he was, he was a pretty sophisticated scientist himself. And, you know, elsewhere in his writing, he writes a treatise on the astrolabe for his young son, Lewis. And, you know, it's, it's, apparently it's a, it's a pretty scientifically sophisticated description. So he knew about these things. So that's the other fascinating thing about these pilgrims is that they show the different kind of milieu that Chaucer was plugged into himself. Absolutely. A Renaissance man, even before the official Renaissance. <laughs> yes, before <I> the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> then one of the final locations which Chaucer mentions in the poem before they arrive at Canterbury is this rather sort of cryptically referenced place where he says, there's a little town which that Eclipides bob up and down under the Blee in Canterbury Way. So it's on the way to Canterbury, it's under the Blee, and that's probably Bleen Forest, which is, still exists around here. And it's thought that bob up and down is this little village called Harbledown, which is just on the outskirts of Canterbury before you come over the final ridge and see the cathedral and head down into the city. And it's here that the Manciple tells his tale. Yeah, it's worth saying that although Chaucer brings so much creativity and imagination to his stories, lots of them are taken from other sources, but a real range of sources. So, um, you know, some are taken from the Decameron, some are taken from classical literature, some are taken from old French fablio, these kind of naughty stories. I agree, and what, what's so special, I think, is how he makes them unique by, by adding the layering of character on top of the actual stories and, of course, Completely. retelling the stories as well. Everybody, yes. anybody yes. who takes a story always has to re retell it. Of course, as yeah. Well as they can. yeah. Here we are. We can see the cathedral. We can. It's a rather wonderful sight with some medieval ruins in the foreground and then the tower of the cathedral behind. We've come in on a rather... The track's kind of raised up a bit, isn't it? So we're, it's almost like we're floating above Canterbury as we come into it. Must have been very exciting for the pilgrims to yes, actually catch sight, sight. That sight of the cathedral. They've, they've travelled all that way, all the yes. way from London, three Absolutely. or four days, and then suddenly you see this magnificent 
Because it really is, isn't it? Canterbury Cathedral is magnificent. Stunning. It must have been overwhelming. I love this walk in from Canterbury East, actually. I actually don't know that. I've normally only used the other station. She says, like, as if I can remember the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, I know anyway, this, this is the right way. We cross Good. over the bridge. So we're, we're now approaching the city of Canterbury. We're on the west side of the city and uh, we've stopped just outside a church, outside the city walls, St Dunstan's Church. And before we get down to the West Gate and the city of Canterbury, it's a delight to welcome another guest to the episode, Professor David Hurd. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to have you with us. David is the Professor of Modern Literature at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And you are one of the coordinators of a wonderful project called Refugee Tales. And I wonder, could you just tell us a little bit about what Refugee Tales is? Sure. Refugee Tales is, to quote our strapline, a walk in solidarity with refugees, asylum seekers and detainees. Uh -huh. And the, the purpose of the project is to call attention to the fact that the UK is the only country in Europe that detains people indefinitely under immigration rules and in the process of making that call to call for that policy to end. And uh, the way we make our call is by sharing the stories of people who have uh, experienced indefinite detention in the UK. So people who've come here, sought asylum uh, and found themselves detained in this fashion. And the stories are shared in the context of an, an annual public walk. So mm. we, um, in 2015, we walked for nine days. We covered, I don't really know how many miles, quite a 60 or 70 miles. The point being that every evening that yep. we would stop, we would share the stories of people who have experienced detention, mm. hence the association with the Canterbury Tales. Right, so it's a, it's a walk with stories. And, and we were talking about the ways in which Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales is giving a voice to all these different people from across the social structure. And it feels, it feels like a very empowering thing to do. Yeah, I mean, there is clearly a, a giving voice taking place in the Canterbury Tales. It's... Um, there's a really lovely word in Canterbury Tales, which is sondry or sundry, uh, where various people are being brought together to share various stories in, right. in various ways. And the variousness of it connects to the project that we're concerned with. So there is the giving voice. But the more we've thought about this, uh, because we've carried on dwelling on why Chaucer and why the Canterbury Tales uh, presented themselves. And I, I think it's partly that right there at the beginning, if we can say so, of, of English language poetry, Right there at the beginning, there is an association between movement and storytelling. And one of the things that the project is constantly trying to observe is that this, this moment that we're living through, when the language is all of hostility and hostility to others and hostility to journeying and to traveling, there have been other languages available to us, other ways of thinking about journeys, other ways of thinking about stories. And if you trace that back, then you get to Chaucer where people move and they share stories. And it's not just that they share stories as they move, but when they gather in Southwark, they have already been moving. That's, that's nice. the whole point. And then crucially, they don't share their own stories precisely. They share other people's stories and they share stories of travel. And there, there you have it. The, the connection between movement and story and poetry is established. And it's crucial. That's brilliantly put. And it's a great way of kind of cohering the group, of making them a fellowship. So that's, that's really lovely. And that, in ways that I think we didn't fully understand when we just like embarked on walking and, and storytelling, that's what's happened with the project. So what we've found is that a community has gathered in the act of walking. 
because wherever we're walking, then all of us, whether we've lived here a long time or haven't lived here for very long or whatever, we're all encountering stuff that we aren't familiar with. And so a community emerges out of that. Brilliant. And, and Patience, you were involved in that, that very first Refugee Tales walk in 2015, right? Yeah, I didn't actually walk, but I was actually asked to, to write, well, say co-write a tale, because, of course, each of the tales was a collaboration. So um, I interviewed the refugee, created as Farida, although that wasn't her real name. And then I, I, I took the story, I tried to use as many of her words as possible and create the tale. But what happened is, I, for the debut of the tale, I arrived at the, the venue and saw this this group of people who'd obviously walked, you know, quite a long way, yes. and yet were just the, the energy was was palpable. And I thought, I want I want some of that. <laughs> I want some of that. So I decided that, that so that it wasn't until the next year, the subsequent year, that I actually and every year since I've participated in some form, usually a couple of legs, um, consecutive legs of the walk. Wonderful. It's a really inspiring project. Amazing that you've kept it going year after year, including this year. And as well as the walk itself and, and that event, you've published the stories yeah. that have come out of it in these beautiful series of books. And David, I wonder if I could ask you to read an excerpt from the prologue that you wrote to the first um, Refugee Tales book. Sure, thank you. And said, and said again, stories of the new geography, stories of arrival, of accompanied minors, of people picked up and detained, of process and mistranslation, networks of visitors and friends, this new language we ask for forming, strung out along the North Downs way. Which makes it a question of scale. Consider just the scale of the undertaking, Chaucer's pilgrims crossing Palatai and Turkey and Rus across the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, dark these days, not like wine, crossing through Flandre, through Artois, crossing the water at Picardy and all the while finding stories, and then all of them gathering one night in London. And so the host says, since we're walking, why don't we tell each other tales? And so they do, out of Southwark. And what comes out of Southwark is a whole new language of travel and assembly and curiosity and welcome. To make his English sweet, that's why Chaucer told his tales. How badly we need English to be made sweet again, rendered hostile by act of law, so that even friendship is barely possible. There, as this Lord was keeper of the cell, so we might actually talk, and in talking, come to understand the journey. Tender, says the poet, to Canterbury they wend. Oh, thank you. Beautifully read. And that's one excerpt from a really beautiful prologue poem that you've written to the volume thank you David I love that moment where you say this is a language of welcome that's you know that feels so timely to hear that well David thank you very much for joining us it's been a real pleasure to meet you thank you for telling us about refugee tales and uh, that you know that really puts in perspective the the long legacy of Chaucer and, and the ways in which he can inspire people today and it's, a, I guess, the perfect way for us to now head down towards the city and towards our final destination, the cathedral. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. Thank you very much. So we've walked down from St Dunstan's and we've arrived at the West Gate in the old city walls of Canterbury. And we're about to enter into the old city of Canterbury and head to find the cathedral, the end point of this pilgrimage. But the thing about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is it is unfinished, it is fragmentary, and it stops just on the brink of arriving at Canterbury itself, doesn't it? We don't quite get there. 
Chaucer says at the end of what has survived, he says, four of the clock it was, so as I guess, sir. It's about four o'clock right now. And he says, lordings every chon, now lacketh us no tales more than one. Fulfilled is my sentence and my decree. I trow that we han heard of each degree. Almost fulfilled is all mine ordinance. So whatever Chaucer set out to do, whatever we've lost or whatever he didn't quite manage to write, this final section, he's saying, the host is saying, well, we've almost, the thing is coming to an end. We've almost finished. There's just one more person to tell their story. But in a way, I quite like that because there's a sense of anticipation. He sort of sets it up, doesn't he? Yes, he does, yeah. For this final tale. And the final tale is told by the parson, who, in contrast to all these naughty monks and friars and so on, is presented as a good man. In the general prologue, it said, This noble example to his sheep he yaff, that first he wrought and afterward he taught. So he did things by example, this parson. And it's interesting, I think, that the mood of the pilgrim seems to have changed over the course of this poem. At the beginning, you know, there's tales like the Miller's Tale and the Reeves' Tale. It's kind of bawdy, it's fun, it's kind of high spirits. And at one point, the parson is going to tell a tale, but the shipman stops him and says, we don't want to hear your tale, I'll tell you one instead. But now, at the end of the pilgrimage, they've, they've travelled the distance, they're about to arrive at the cathedral, and now the parson finally gets to tell his tale. And Patience, describe the parson's tale to us. What, what kind of thing is it? Well, the parson's tale, it's really um, a treaty on the seven deadly sins. It's a sermon. It isn't a story. Really, yeah. No. There's some really good description, though, about some of the seven deadly sins. But actually, when it, when it comes to it, it's quite long, <laughs> and it's prose. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't think prose was Chaucer's forte. So, um, it, in a way, it's quite surprising. In, in other ways, it's not, because I suppose the, there is the tone of high seriousness. There's no irony whatsoever. And um, to take that on board as a writer, I, I was thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? And I decided I wanted to actually keep a serious tone and keep it quite didactic. But the only thing that would work with that was old school rap. <laughs> and it's such a great um, poem to end your collection with. And you, you make it an allegory of the seven deadly sins, don't you, with personified. It's Absolutely. I think a, a little bit of Langland came in there. Of course, in, the, the, in Piers Plowman, there is a, an amazing section where, where Langland describes the seven deadly sins with lots of incredible detail. And um, very much, I would say it's probably the best, the best medieval depiction of the seven deadly sins. It's wonderful, yeah. But, of course, it was Chaucer. I was, I, I was walking in the footsteps of Chaucer, so I had to take it back to Chaucer. And what I decided to do was to keep the order of the sins he introduced them. So that, that was my framework. Yeah, brilliantly done. The parson says in his prologue, I will yow tell a merry tale in prose. Well, we can decide whether it's merry, certainly in prose. To knit up all this feast and make an end. And Jesu, for his grace, wit me send to show you the way in this viage of Thilke parfit glorious pilgrimage that heiter Jerusalem celestial. So he's comparing this feast, this, this kind of walk that they've been on together, this feast of stories and, and company, and comparing it not just to a physical pilgrimage, a physical walk, but to the kind of allegorical pilgrimage of our lives, which is towards a higher place to sort of become better people spiritually. And I, I think it's so moving and so 
clever of Chaucer to do that at the end, that this, what seems like a, a frame story for, as an excuse for lots of little tales, becomes something bigger and a, and a, a reflection of our whole lives. Yeah, and I think, I think it's clever. I think he, he knows that he can't have spent the entire Canterbury Tales with serious tales like that, but that by the end it, it, it's only befitting to have the serious tale. It's Absolutely. almost as if he's, he's you know, he's given, so he's given us the perfect solace and then he ends right. with the sentence. Brilliant, yes. Well, on that note, at almost the very end of the Canterbury Tales, let's walk through the West Gate and walk up the High Street towards Canterbury Cathedral. That's a pretty little church, isn't it? Yes. It's one of the things I love about Canterbury, the little side streets, you just catch glimpses of gorgeousness everywhere we're approaching the cathedral down the high street and some stunning buildings so here we are at Canterbury Cathedral wow a huge medieval white stone edifice it's actually today it's it's almost completely covered in scaffolding they're clearly doing some work on the outside of it but in a way, that feels quite appropriate, because in 1382, there was an earthquake and part of the cathedral had collapsed. So actually, if Chaucer's fictional pilgrims had been arriving here in the mid-1380s, it would have also been covered in scaffolding at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's magnificent. Every, every time I see it, I'm shocked by the, by the sheer size of it, by, the, by its majesty. It's, it's, it's a very powerful space. Patience, how would you describe uh, the look of the cathedral? Well, I think it's it's interesting because in one day we've come from you know the the, the Holy Trinity Church in Dartford, yes, and then we've been to Rochester Cathedral, which is pretty magnificent in itself. But then when you get to Canterbury, Canterbury Cathedral is one of the big daddies of cathedrals. You really right. know. I'm always lost for words when when I encounter it, and this time in particular, because we've kind of seen it's almost like you're seeing the world get bigger in scale each time, yes. and yes. so and, and this is the finale. We've reached our destination, and um, it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah, it's a wonderful way of putting it. It's incredible to think of those medieval craftsmen putting each of these stones, one on top of the other, and reaching so far into the sky and creating such a grand construction. And, and especially amazing to think of all the pilgrims who've gathered, who've travelled here over the centuries to this spot. It also makes me think of... Another great church, Westminster Abbey, where Geoffrey Chaucer is buried. It's interesting that Chaucer is buried in Westminster Abbey because at the end of his life he was living nearby. It was his parish church, it, you know, he would be buried there. But because of his status as the great poet of Middle English, as the, as the father of English literature, his grave became somewhere where other writers wanted to be buried. And now it's the centrepiece of what we call Poet's Corner, in Westminster Abbey. And it's, I rather like the idea of him sort of overseeing this kind of gathering of all the greatest writers and poets that Britain has seen. It's an interesting issue, of course, I think, with the great writers never die, do they? Because, they, because of course, they live on yes. through their works and, and especially through the characters. We're back again to the, the characters. And I remember you asking me earlier, you know, how much of my character did I put into my version of Telling Tales and yes. of course yes Chaucer transposed himself into his own tales but actually of course Chaucer's infuses all the, all the characters he's created of course he does yes and you're right they are immortal we're still talking about them today and in that way he, he lives on Patience in your um, 
reading of the Canterbury Tales and in and working on telling tales. In what ways do you think that the poem itself is a form of pilgrimage? Is there a journey that we go on over the course of reading or, or reciting this poem? Absolutely, because I think I think when you know people go on a pilgrimage to get some sort of maybe spiritual awakening. I mean, there are secular pilgrimages too these days, so there's, there are many reasons why people go on them. But the whole idea is to, I suppose, broaden and deepen the mind. And in reading the Canterbury Tales, there's no question about it. You you broaden the mind because you you have such a huge range of characters coming from all these different places, as well as, of course, the depth of of the poetry. I mean, in Chaucer's day, there was no such thing as the novel. So, you know, he was a master storyteller. In a sense, he was both a novelist and a poet in that you get the breadth of a novel, but the, the depth of poetry in terms of the sort of all the linguistic, nitty-gritty stuff. Absolutely. Well, arriving here at the cathedral brings us, brings us to the end of our pilgrimage today. And Patience, thank you so much for joining us today and for all your wonderful readings and for travelling on a pilgrimage from London to Canterbury. Thank you. Well, thank you, Henry. It's been an absolute pleasure. Many thanks to Patience Agbarby, David Hurd, the George Inn and the London and South Eastern Railway, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott. The producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. One last thing. Chaucer ends the Canterbury Tales with what he calls a retraction. And I'm going to read his retraction now, and then we'll finish with Patience's version. Now pray I to him all that hearkener this little treatise or read, that if there be anything in it that liketh him, that thereof they thanken our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom proceedeth all wit and all goodness. And if there be anything that displease him, I pray him also that they arret it to the default of mine unconning, and not to my will, that would full fain have said better, if I had a had conning. Backtrack, grime mix. Now you've tuned to or leafed through this volume. If you like any tales, tell the whole room. If you slam this slam anthology, for the sick bit, here's my apology. To all Christians we misrepresented, to all faiths that were Neil represented. For the hardcore macho and sexist, every encore showing sex as sex is. For the stereotypes, I hold my head low. Should I fix the mix? April said no. Keep the cursing, class A's and violence. Our intent was to showcase this island's love of retelling tales and its fierce pun, not to cut out the gem from its pierced tongue. So we're keeping it real on the papyrus. All that's written is written to inspire us. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.